purposes, God, and I thank you for the return that will come back in multiple ways in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen. Good morning. Hey, I want to just ask you, uh, Pastor Jason's having a procedure uh, done tomorrow on his eye. I think a lot of you know he's been having difficulty seeing out of the left eye, so they're are going to do a procedure down in Des Moines tomorrow morning, so if you just would keep him in prayer, they're going to have to put a gas bubble in there, and he's going to have to kind of be face down for about 10 days, so uh, it's kind of a, you know, I don't know if the procedure is as bad as the uh, recovery time, but uh, it sure seems like it to me, so just keep him in prayer tomorrow, he's going to be down in Des Moines uh, getting that um, done, so hopefully after 10 days, uh, everything will kind of be back to normal uh, I mean, I don't know what they'll do after that. Maybe just put the eye in backwards and it can stare at your brain. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, just keep him in prayer tomorrow. I know that they would really appreciate that. And just in the coming days after that, just so uh, I know it's going to be kind of tough to be in that kind of a position where you have to have your head down the whole time like that for 10 days. So just keep him in your prayers and family and stuff. Up until the late 1800s, uh, doctors and scientists believed in the term called spontaneous generation. And this was the idea that living things, specifically um, disease, could arise from non-living things. As long as doctors and scientists believed in spontaneous generation that living things could arise or come into being from non-living things, they saw no purpose in considering how diseases were transmitted, how they could be prevented, or how they could be controlled. So when disease popped up in families, communities, cities, wiped out hundreds and thousands of people, it was often just assumed back then that it was without cause. It was thought of as providential. Some even considered it the will of God. There was no real investigation or study to learn how these things happened, how these diseases came into being, how they were transmitted. It was assumed because of spontaneous generation that a non-living organism could just suddenly produce as a living organism that could turn into, among other things, a disease. Now, just to show you how far we have come in terms of medical scientific advancement, consider this. This is true. This would be a Ripley's believe it or not moment. In the 17th century, it was once believed that in order to produce mice, all that was necessary was to place sweaty undergarments and husk of wheat in an open mouth jar then wait about 21 days during which time it was believed that the sweat from the undergarments would penetrate the husk of wheat, changing them into mice. Uh, Mark, that's not true. Although such a concept may seem outrageously laughable to us today, the concept of spontaneous generation that living things could arise from non-living substances made such thoughts back then reasonable and plausible. It wasn't until 1859 that a young chemist by the name of Louis Pasteur finally and fully laid to rest the erroneous theory of spontaneous generation. 
Pasteur confirmed that there are invisible organisms you cannot see that actually transmit diseases. He confirmed that these invisible organisms, they could be carried by the wind. They could be passed on by just touching someone's skin. They can live in food. They can live on certain surfaces. Pasteur discovered that diseases were not just popping up randomly from non-living organisms, but he discovered that there was an invisible world that was impacting the visible world. There was an invisible world that was impacting the visible world. These disease-causing microorganisms, we call them germs, they were present in the air, but they were not created by the air. These disease-causing organisms were everywhere. You couldn't see them. This invisible world of microorganisms were indeed impacting, causing havoc in the visible world, and it carried with it the potential to destroy families, lives, communities, causing pestilence throughout the world, killing hundreds and thousands, all because of something you could not see. We're seeing that same thing with the Ebola virus right now. Louis Pasteur put forth what became known as the germ theory. The idea that invisible microorganisms could impact the seen world. Well, this little discovery kind of changed the way Pasteur and his little community of doctors and scientists viewed and approached disease. They became more aware of the need to wash their hands, uh, of, of separating the sick from the healthy and quarantining people. Again, we're seeing all of this play out with the Ebola virus. But those outside of this little community of scientists and doctors thought these people were absolutely crazy. You mean to tell me there are things we cannot see that are impacting the things we can see? You believe there are invisible things floating through the air and landing on food, on someone's skin, that can kind of be transmitted by touch, that these invisible things can impact the invisible world? That's what you're telling us? That's what you want us to believe? And Pastor said, absolutely. As a matter of fact, today none of us would dispute the fact that invisible microscopic organisms have the power to create havoc in the world of the seen. Many people today are kind of germaphobes, and that's why so many people are so addicted to anything that is antibacterial. We believe in an unseen world of microscopic germs that can come and create widespread death and destruction and no one even saw it coming. So you and I, we believe in the power of the unseen. Then along comes the Bible. The Bible says, you know what? There's another unseen world. There's another invisible world that doesn't just impact us physically, there is a world 
an invisible, unseen world that affects and impacts us relationally. It impacts our thinking. It filtrates into our world view, into our attitudes about morality, our purity. It infects and affects our finances, how we do business, our relationships, our marriages, how we date, how we interact. It impacts everything about us. It's an invisible world we cannot see, and yet it impacts every single thing we do. As we talk about this, again, some of you are going to be tempted to resist this and just kind of push back on the idea of an unseen world, of an invisible world. We'll be like those people who lived back in the 1800s, and we'll say, you mean, pastor, to tell me there's something I can't see that impacts what I do see or how I see what I see? You mean to tell me there's something I can't see that is all around me and it has the ability to land where it wants to land, to go where it wants to go, and this invisible world impacts and affects my visible world? That's difficult to believe. And what we're going to talk about in these next several weeks is going to be a little difficult to believe. See, the same Bible that says love one another, we, we love that part of the Bible, even though it may be difficult and challenging at times. The same Bible that says, children, obey your parents. Now, we who are parents, we love that verse in the Bible. Same Bible that says that whatever you ask for in Jesus' name, that God will do. We, we, we love that part. That same Bible also says there is an invisible world that has the potential to impact our visible world in catastrophic and destructive ways. There is an unseen world that impacts your seen world every single day. And see, here's the thing. You don't need a microscope to see this invisible world. You don't need a team of doctors or scientists to point this out or to prove this to you. All most of us need is a rear view mirror. All most of us need to see this invisible world is to look back on your own life and to some of your own decisions, your past decisions and when you do that, you'll find yourself kind of asking yourselves these questions. How could I have been so blind? Why didn't I see that? How could I have been so foolish to think that, to do that, to go there? How could I have thought that was such a good idea when now looking back on it, it clearly was such a bad idea? How could I have gotten so deceived? How could things have gotten so twisted and mixed up in my thinking? Why could I not see it in the moment? But now looking back on it, I see it so clearly. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't even need a rearview mirror. Some of you may be here this morning and all you need is a mirror because you're in the midst of this right now.
There are things happening in your life where you are being impacted right now by this unseen, invisible world. Why am I doing this? Why am I going there? Why do things get so twisted in our head, in our hearts, our emotions? It's real simple. We're going to see. The Bible has an answer for that. There is deception. There is confusion. There is a distortion of truth that's just enough to get us into trouble, but not too much to shock us or to scare us away. And the one behind the deception, they're never going to tip their hand. And they're never going to become too obvious for us to see. Otherwise, we'd see them for who they are and we would run the other way. Jesus, you're going to see, believed. And he taught about this invisible, unseen world that impacts our visible and seen world. And his explanation for this is a bit unsettling. In John 8, Jesus kind of gives us his perception, his take on this invisible, unseen world. Let me just give you a little bit of background on John chapter 8. Jesus is having a conversation with some very hostile religious leaders. By this time, Jesus is far enough along in his public ministry a ministry which includes many miracles, signs, and wonders. He has taught so many profound truths that many who have heard him and witnessed his miracles, heard what he says, seen what he is doing, are beginning to think this man just might be the Messiah. He may be the fulfillment of what God said he was going to send to us in the person of a Redeemer. And these religious leaders, they're kind of standing on the periphery and they're seeing all that Jesus is doing. They're hearing all that Jesus is saying and they don't like him. Yet these religious leaders, they should have been the easiest to convince because they should have known exactly what to look for in the Messiah. And yet they see everything that Jesus is doing, they hear everything that Jesus is saying and they are very hostile toward him. So in John 8, Jesus is having a conversation with these unsupportive, angry, hostile religious leaders. And look what Jesus says to them beginning in verse 31. And I'm going to kind of just paraphrase this. encourage you to go back and read that later. But I'm going to kind of just paraphrase the conversation. Jesus says, look. And he's speaking to these religious leaders. He said, look here. After all you've seen me do, after all you have heard me say, do you still not recognize that I have come from God? And the religious leaders respond to Jesus' comment by saying, we don't need to know. And we don't need to come to God to know because we have Abraham as our father. We're related to Abraham. So we don't want to know. We don't care to know anything about you. If God wants to say something to us, he'll say it to us through Moses, through Abraham. We don't need you, Jesus. You're a false Messiah. You're a false prophet. We don't believe you are from God. Jesus says, look, if you really were the sons, the children of Abraham, if you were really the devout followers of Moses you claim to be, 
you would have recognized me because Moses knows who I am. Abraham knows who I am. God knows who I am. He said, the problem is you religious leaders don't know who I am because you're not really followers of God. And so you can kind of just tell from the context, Jesus and these religious leaders, they just really get into it. Jesus kind of just sort of takes off the gloves. And he's going to just tell them, I'll tell you why you don't recognize me. I'm going to tell you why you don't know that I come from the Father. I mean, why is it Jesus has done the things that he's done, said the things that he says, making it so obvious, so plain that he comes from God, and in the face of all that evidence, overwhelming evidence, they still don't recognize that Jesus is from God. So in John 8, 43, Jesus says, why can you not understand what I'm saying? He said, it's because you can't even hear me. Jesus is asking them, why is it you can't understand what I say or who I am? Are you deaf? Then in verse 44, Jesus kind of goes to the root cause and he says, for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. In these two verses, Jesus makes a statement that kind of just tips his hand regarding his worldview. Jesus asks, and then he answers his own question. Why do you not understand me? Is it your hearing? He says, no. It's because you are of your father, the devil. Jesus is saying the reason you cannot recognize the obvious in the face of overwhelming mounting evidence is because you are so confused and deceived. Jesus is saying there is something or someone else at work here. There is an invisible world that is influencing your perception, and your understanding. Jesus says, there is a deceiver, and he has sowed the seeds into you that in the face of overwhelming evidence, your thinking is just twisted enough, just confused enough to where you take what I say and what I do and you ascribe it, you credit it to something other than God. The problem is, and you don't see it, but I'm going to show you. The problem is you're deceived, you've been influenced by, and you're under the influence and the power of your father, the devil. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes on in verse 44 saying, let me tell you a little bit about your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar. He is the father of lies. Now, Jesus makes it very, very clear here. He's not using a figure of speech when he refers to the devil. Rather, Jesus is telling us that he believed in and he is describing 
an individual he called the devil. Now that tells me that Jesus actually believed the devil was actually a person, an entity, a he, and Jesus believed that. He taught about that. And I know that may be hard for some of you to believe, but this is what Jesus believed. Jesus believed the devil's ultimate grand agenda was murder. His ultimate agenda was the destruction of human life and the means by which to destroy human life was through deception. Get that. It is the power of deception. It's the, it's the devil's greatest tool. Deception, distortion through lies and through twisting the truth. Now this is so important. You've got to get this. The devil is limited. He does not have an infinite power. He does not have an in infinite supply of tools. He's limited to using deception. That's it. That's his only tool. So I hear people, they, they talk about, oh, the devil made me do this, oh, the devil made me do that. Oh, you know, the devil's just running their lives. I got news for you. Some of you, the devil just wakes you up in the morning and you take it from there. The only tool the devil has is deception, is distortion. He's limited. He's limited to using distortion, to twisting the truth. He's limited in what he can do. But I'll tell you what, even though he's limited in what he can use and what he can do, he uses that deception, that distortion, that twisting of the truth in extraordinarily creative and subtle ways. What little freedom he has, he uses very effectively. Relationships, marriages, friendships, families, communities, all that is sacred and holy to the human race, Satan is against. He opposes. And his agenda, his number one mission, is to destroy all of that. And he does it so effectively with just one tool, deception. That's why Revelation 20 it's talking about the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ in which we are going to rule and reign with Jesus. This is following the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit. And shut him up and set a sail upon him that he should deceive. That's the only power he's got. He's limited. But the one thing he has left, he shall deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed. A little season. Then skip over to verse 7. This is after the thousand years has passed. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And he shall go out to deceive the nations. That's all he's got. The ability, the tool to deceive. 
The agenda of the devil is to destroy all that is sacred, all that is holy to human life. And the means by which he does this to carry out that destruction is primarily through deception, distortion, and twisting the truth. So through deception, distortion, twisting the truth, the devil, though very subtle and gradual means, he influences the mind so that we think what is right is actually wrong, what is wrong is right, and Jesus links this blindness and this temporary insanity we've all experienced and seen, and he just lays it all at the doorstep of the devil, the enemy. See, for some of you, this may explain, or at least it should, some things, and and it may be something you need to learn to factor into your struggles, maybe in your marriage or in your relationships or in your homes. Maybe it's something parents you need to factor in when dealing with a prodigal son or daughter. Maybe it's something we need to factor into in our conflicts, in our struggles with our family, our neighbors, our co-workers. Jesus believed there is an invisible, unseen world that impacts and affects your visible world. And this may shed some light for some of you. It may open the door to revelation for some of you about certain situations in your life that defy explanation. Maybe there is something you and I can't see that surely impacts and influences everything you do see. Now, now Jesus was not alone in this belief and understanding of this invisible, unseen world. 30 years after Jesus said what he said there in John 8, the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know what Paul believed? The apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament, he believed there was a devil, a personality, an entity, a he, and that he has schemes, he has plans, He has a strategy, and it's really a very simple one. It's to take what's true and twist it. To take what is evident and just distort it. To take what's true and change it just enough to where it's just not true enough to harm me. So part of the devil's scheme is to take our appetites. Again, your appetites, they're God-given. But part of the devil's plan is to take our appetite, something that is good, to take our appetite, and then he kind of twists it, and he distorts it, and he turns it into something that becomes an addiction. He takes our desires, again, which can be a great thing. They're a God-given thing. But part of the scheme and the plan of the enemy is to take our desires and then through deception twist it to where it becomes greed. He takes something that is appealing and he twists it to where it becomes jealousy and envy. He takes self-awareness, something again that has the potential to be good and healthy, and he twists it just enough to where it becomes self-centeredness and insecurity. Part of the scheme of the enemy is to twist people's view of God, that when these things are happening in your life, and it's the devil doing it, 
he'll twist it just enough that you'll get mad at God. You'll blame God for what's going on in your life. And, and you'll run away from him instead of to him. And you'll make decisions based upon your anger, your confusion, and you'll blame God for the consequences of your decisions. But again, you got to understand, Jesus said, Paul said, the enemy has a plan. He has a scheme. And that plan is aimed at your destruction. And the means by which he is going to accomplish that is through deception. It's a system that never delivers on its promises, it is a system that turns man's hearts away from God and then blames him for the consequences. It's a system that twists and distorts. Oftentimes how that'll work in our lives is the enemy will just kind of whisper. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. You were born that way. I was born that way. Your father was like that. My father was like that. You've tried, but you just can't change. I've tried, but I just can't change. And so, through deception, he just twists, puts the thought, the ideas, the comments in our minds, and then we kind of just spill them out as if they're our own. Apostle Paul continues on in verse 12. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this high world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know what Paul's saying? Our problem is not really each other. Our problem is a common enemy. Our enemy, the devil, wants us to view one another as the enemy. It's her fault. It's your fault. She's the enemy. You're the enemy. And we lose sight of the enemy. And when, when, when that happens, we're just going to misdirect our attacks. It's not just your spouse that's the problem. Oh, but pastor, you don't know my spouse. It's not just your children that's the problem. Oh, pastor, you don't know my kids. It's not just your boss or coworker that's the problem. Jason's saying, oh, you don't know Pastor Jeff. <laughs> what Paul would say to us, remember to factor into whatever you're struggling with. It's not just what we see. But factor into, be aware of, there is an, an invisible, unseen world that is impacting your visible and seen world. There's a spiritual component to all of these struggles that you're going through. We're dealing with the father of lies. Now, all that may sound like a, just a bunch of science fiction, you know, hokey pokey nonsense to some of you. And I, I, I'm wired to agree. It's part of our fallen nature. It may be the reason some of you struggle with Christianity. It may be the reason some distance themselves from the church. But isn't it true? I mean, think about this. Let's just step outside and look at some realities in our world today. Isn't it true that every once in a while you hear something, you read about something, and you think to yourself, that's just evil. 
And, and you don't have any rational explanation for it. 13 years ago, we just got done celebrating. I shouldn't say celebrating, commemorating. 13 years ago, there was a group of Muslim men who spent years and years planning and scheming to attack the United States by hijacking passenger jets and flying them into the Twin Towers in New York City because they believed that would make God happy. Folks, that's just twisted. That's not like somebody lost their temper and shot somebody. I understand that. I'm not advocating that, but I can understand that. It's not like somebody came home and found their spouse in the midst of an affair and shot them. I understand that. I'm not advocating that kind of a response, but I can understand that. However, these men spent years and years planning and scheming the horrific acts against men, women, and that whole time, they're thinking everything they're doing and planning is justifiable and makes perfect sense. Jesus and the Apostle Paul and I believe behind all of that was an invisible, unseen world influencing their thoughts and their actions, twisting, deceiving, and distorting enough that they were willing to do what they did. The Holocaust took years of planning and scheming, and this was a very sophisticated, well-oiled machine a killing machine. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people thought the best thing to do is let's round up the Jewish people who have done nothing to us. Let's steal everything they own and then systematically kill them. And let's kill as many of them as we possibly can because this will help us accomplish something good. That's twisted. The nation of Germany looked back on that time in their history and wonder to themselves, what in the world were we thinking? Again, this wasn't just a momentary loss of sanity. This was a long term, systematic, organized implementation of pure evil. Jesus and Paul understood and believed that behind the Holocaust was an unseen, invisible world impacting and affecting the seen world. The recent beheadings of American journalists by Islamic terrorists. Let's just kill men, women, and children who practice a different religion from ours, and let's put their heads on stakes. Let's just drive out all of the Christians who will not convert to our religion. Why? Because this is going to help us accomplish our purposes. What purposes? What purposes could be worth this? Again, this isn't, I just lost my temper. 
This is a systematic annihilation of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But yet, to a select certain group, the aggressors in all of this, to them, this all makes perfect sense. And it seems the right thing to do. Child pornography, child prostitution, Mexican drug cartels, slavery, all of this ends up in the destruction of human life. How does anyone get this deceived, this confused, this twisted? I can't even begin to understand some of this, and I'm guessing a lot of you can't either. And I don't know about you, but that's when I kind of fall back on my fundamental belief that Jesus really was sent from God. Whether I can explain or understand all of this, I'll lean into His explanation of the world around me, what is happening, rather than just relying on my own understanding. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they kind of pulled back the curtain and they revealed the true culprit behind it all. And what they found was there is an invisible, unseen world that is out to destroy as much of the sacredness of human life as possible and to do it through the means of deception. Jesus and Paul did this. They, they talked about this. They showed this to us because their concern and hope for us is that our reality, our perceptions would not get so twisted that our view of one another would not become so distorted, that our view of marriage, our view of raising kids, our view of money, our view of politics, our view would not get so twisted that we wouldn't make decisions that would result in the destruction and the demise of human life. That's the introduction to the sermon this is where we're going to go for the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at some of the major twists, the major distortions that occur in our culture. And we're going to ask God through His Word, through the Holy Spirit, that He would open the eyes of our heart, that He would help us to see as He sees, to understand as He understands, and that we would respond to things the way the Father would want us to, because things are not as they always appear to be. We live in a world that has been, currently is, and will continue to be deceived until Jesus comes again. So like I said, we need to factor in that invisible, unseen world and the way that it impacts us. We also need to be able to lean into, and we also need to factor in God's presence, His plans, His purposes. And we need to see how God wants to use that to, to infect and to affect our decisions, our plans, our destinations. And communion is one of those reminders that when we partake, we are reminding ourselves, God is with me, He is for me, He loves me. His ways are not my ways, His ways are higher than my ways. 
His plans are for my future and for my hope. We need to factor that into our lives. And communion is again a reminder and an opportunity to acknowledge God's presence, that He is with us at all times, that He'll never leave us, He'll never forsake us. Amen? Let's stand. I invite the worship team to come back up this morning. Father, we just thank you this morning. That, Father, you have not abandoned us to this invisible, unseen world, but you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and revealed this invisible, unseen world to us. And then you have given us your Holy Spirit that through him we can overcome the enemy that is out to destroy us. And we thank you for that. And Father, I pray that even now, God, you would just continue to open our eyes more clearly. Father, that you would use your Holy Spirit, God, to move in our lives in powerful ways, Father, that not only can we see the deception, but, Father, we can withstand, we can oppose. And, Father, we again just thank you for that power. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you remind us through that, through the breaking of the body, the shedding of your son's blood, that you remind us that you are with us, that you love us, that you're for us, and that you have a plan and a, that's a future for us that is one of hope, one of promise. And Father, we just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just invite you this morning as we uh, just close. We're just going to uh, end with worship. Uh, if you'd like to take communion, you can just come up, take a piece of bread off the plate, uh, dip it in the juice. We partake by what we call intinction uh, here this morning. And you can just come uh, and uh, celebrate communion anytime you feel led to do that this morning. If you would like prayer uh, this morning, we'd love to be able to pray with you. Uh, so if you want to just make your way up here, uh, up front, one of us would love to just uh, pray over you and to pray for you. Um, uh, today. So thanks.